Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting Internet Radio. Tonight we are going to commence with part through part three of our series of commentaries on the prophecy of Malachi, and this is subtitled Universalism Rebuked. In the opening verses of the prophet Malachi, we see that Jacob and Esau are compared in an allegorical dialogue where Jacob is told that he is loved. And in turn, he asks why, while expressing a greater concern for Esau. We have asserted that this is prophetic of the very times in which we live, where Christians of European heritage, who are for the most part descended from the ancient Israelites, typically show greater concern for the accursed Edomite Jews than they do for their own people. That is the transcendental or far-vision fulfillment of this prophecy. As we have before described of the prophets of the Bible, that many of their prophecies have a dual fulfillment, one for the closer future of the time of the prophet and one for the distant future. We hope to have most clearly illustrated this phenomenon of prophecy in our commentary on the prophet Zechariah, especially. However, in order to set the stage for the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, which we see right before our very eyes, there must have been an earlier and more immediate fulfillment. But the immediate fulfillment has a history which is not so clear since perhaps as many as 300 years after the prophet had written these words, the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem thought it fitting to forcibly convert all of the Edomites in Palestine to their own religion, circumcising them and converting them into what had become known as Judaism. The Edomite king Herod later built many great cities throughout Palestine and that seems to represent an immediate, albeit incomplete, fulfillment of the prophecy. However, if the Edomites had not been infiltrating into or converting to Judaism, the later end of this prophecy we cannot imagine happening as it is before our very eyes. Before 129 BC, the Edomites were being driven out by the predecessors of John Hyrcanus, and their cities were burned. But a process of converting the Edomites to Judaism began around 129 BC, and it was fully completed within a few decades long before the birth of Christ. By the time of his ministry, these Edomites had already long dominated the society of Judea, as the Herodian rulers who usurped power under the Romans were all Edomites. The early portion of this history of the Edomite absorption into Judaism is not so clear because with the coming of John Hyrcanus into the role of high priest, which is when it began, the accounts in the books of the Maccabees end, there being no other records, and Josephus not informing us, ostensibly because he had no records. We cannot know why such an anti-scriptural policy came about, but only that it was implemented. We know the policy was implemented, and it was implemented successfully, because the expected results are recorded by both Flavius Josephus and Strabo of Cappadocia, as well as by the New Testament writers, as we have already explained in earlier portions of this presentation of Malachi. This process resulted in the formation of the modern Jews, who are predominantly of Edomite blood, who are the enemies of Christ, whom Paul of Tarsus later described as those who had killed the Christ, killed the prophets, and were contrary to all men. As Christ had told them, you believe me not 
because you are not my sheep. But here we may ask, how did they kill the prophets? Now, as we proceed through Malachi chapter 2, we believe that question will always, will also be answered. After the brief dialogue between Yahweh and Jacob, and the answer concerning Esau in chapter 1 of Malachi, the prophet began to address the priests. And here in chapter 2, he continues to address the priests, chastising them and promising to spread dung on their faces and corrupt their seed for their punishment. The King James translation is unclear, so we shall read verse 3 again from the New American Standard Bible. And it says, Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring rather than corrupt your seed, and I will spread refuse rather than dung on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. The Septuagint Greek is also different where Brenton reads it to say, Behold, I turn my back upon you, and I will scatter dung on your faces, the dung of your feasts, and I will carry you away at the same time. But the reading is uncertain, since the hexapla of origin reveals that in ancient times the Greek manuscripts were also divided between the readings. However, whether Yahweh had promised to corrupt the seed of the priests or not is immaterial. If he did, we would understand that to be a result of their sin tolerated by his permissive will. But it is evident not only from the testimonies in Ezra and in Nehemiah, but also here in these chapters of Malachi that the priests have been corrupting their own seed by marrying women from outside of their tribe and their race. This is also the reason which the prophet gives for this punishment here in verses 4 and 5, where he says, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. Now, not all of the Levites were priests, but the priests were the Levites of the descendants of Aaron, and the balance of the tribe of Levi were given other administrative duties in the kingdom outside of the service of rituals in the temple. So, none of the Levites had land of their own, and all of the Levites served the community in its administration. Therefore, they all lived from tithes. However, the priests were held to the highest standards in the law, and lived specifically off of the sacrifices, tithes, offerings, and other gifts which were made to the temple. While the men of all the other tribes of Israel were permitted, for instance, to marry a divorced woman of any tribe of Israel, the priestly tribe among the Levites were prohibited. So we read in Leviticus chapter 1 the following, And Yahweh said unto Moses, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 21, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and then after several injunctions, we also read, They shall not take a wife that is a whore, or profane. Neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for he is holy unto his God. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offers the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee, for I, Yahweh, which sanctify you, am holy and the daughter of any priest. If she profanes herself by playing the whore, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, 
and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. Neither shall he go in or approach any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. Neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him, I am Yahweh. (coughs) And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or profane, or a harlot, these he shall not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. And of course we read the same injunction a little earlier in the chapter of all the priests. Other injunctions follow. But these were the restrictions placed upon the Levitical priests in order to ensure the sanctity of the priesthood, and especially the office of high priest. Here in Malachi, where the punishment of the priest is announced, where it says that my covenant might be with Levi, the priests are told that their punishment is due because they forsook these laws of marriage and had begun taking wives of other tribes. Otherwise it would make no sense that Yahweh said they were being punished, that my covenant might be with Levi. They were actually tending towards this sin on several occasions, as they had in the days of Nehemiah. When they were given opportunity to repent. And then they did it again a few decades later in the time of Ezra. And had apparently repented once again. And if this is not the time of Ezra chapter 10, as it is possibly even later, this time they are being cursed. And as the prophet had written in verse 3 of this chapter, dung, I'm sorry, dung will be spread upon their faces and their seed will be corrupted if they continue in this transgression. As an organized group, it seems that all hope is lost. As in chapter 1 of Malachi, the word of Yahweh had announced that his name would be glorified among the nations in spite of the sins of the priests. But here it seems that individuals from among the priests are given a chance to remain in the grace of God, where it says in verse 2 that if ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you. Now in the subsequent verses of this chapter of Malachi, we shall see the fate of the priests who disobeyed the law in this regard, and we will also see a parable for what was about to happen to the 70 weeks kingdom, as the remnant of Judah was destined to mingle with the Canaanites and Edomites of Palestine. But first the words of the prophet continued to describe Yahweh's relationship with Levi. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. And of course this seems to be more descriptive of the tribe of the Levites than it is of Levi himself, as the names of the patriarchs are used in Malachi to represent the tribes of their descendants. Here, in the next verse, this view is substantiated. For the priest's lips should seek, should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. Levi himself never received the law, but his descendants received it, and were given the responsibility of administering it to the people. So Levi is used to describe the entire tribe. During the kingdom period, the priesthood of Aaron was the chosen vessel through which Yahweh spoke to his people. They possessed the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they were the primary keepers and teachers of the law. While the Levites of the various communities throughout the countryside had a role in that task 
at the weekly Sabbath congregations where they served and where they served as judges of the people. Most of the prophets of Scripture did not mention their tribe, but many of those can be identified as being of the tribe of Levi. Daniel and Amos are apparent exceptions, and of course David and Solomon, who should also be counted among the prophets. Malachi compares the ideal presented to the priests, who were the subject of his prophecy, and we must remember that since this is a prophecy, the priests he intends to describe may be his contemporaries, but they may also be in the future. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. So once again, it is stated that the covenant of priesthood between Yahweh and Levi was corrupted, ostensibly because the priests were mingling with the surrounding Canaanite races, where Yahweh had said in verse 5 that my covenant might be with Levi. It is fully evident that the priests were being punished for attempting to allow people who were not of Levi into the priestly covenant. Even worse, causing many to stumble at the law, it seems that the priests were condoning other sins beyond this and beyond the priesthood. While the special relationship which Yahweh had with Levi began to develop in the book of Exodus and it was apparent throughout the book of Numbers, it is summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 10. At that time, Yahweh separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh to minister unto him, and to bless his name unto this day. Wherefore, Levi has no partner inheritance with his brethren. Yahweh is his inheritance, according as Yahweh thy God promised him. That's representative of the covenant with Levi. Where the warning of punishment continues it seems to indicate that a process is about to unfold by which these priests would fall into a degraded and contemptible state. And it says in verse 9, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law just as many of the people of the New Testament period found the priests to be contemptible. And there's an aspect of happenstance or of circumstance in the New Testament which is not readily understood. We see in Ezekiel we see later in the book of Acts that where there was no synagogue, where there was no regular place of assembly for the Hebrew people, they gathered by rivers. There must be a good reason why John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing at the river and had drawn numerous crowds each Sabbath. And it seems to me that those people were gathering by the rivers because they no longer trusted their synagogues. They no longer trusted their priests. That's why it was so easy for Christ and the apostles and John the Baptist to find so many willing disciples by the rivers. The prophecy of Malachi represents the last words of Yahweh God among those which were preserved in the Old Testament. And demonstrably, they are the last of the inspired words of Yahweh between the time that the 70 weeks kingdom was initiated and the time of the birth of Christ. 
So the Levitical priesthood, as it stands in the New Testament, must be seen through this lens, that the priests of the time of Christ were suffering from this very punishment which Yahweh had announced here through the prophet Malachi. Therefore, if over 400 years before the birth of Christ, the word of Yahweh had warned the priests that I will send even a curse upon you, I will corrupt your seed, or perhaps turn my back upon you, and spread dung upon your faces, and I will carry you away at the same time. And then four centuries later, these same priests had despised and opposed the very Messiah which was promised to them in scriptures. And if in turn that Messiah informs them that you are not of my sheep because the priestly covenant was with Levi, then it is hard to perceive that the priests who opposed Christ were not the same corrupted seed of these same cursed priests as they were the descendants of these priests. And if the seed of the priests was to a great extent corrupted, and the whole nation joined to the Edomites and Canaanites, we cannot expect better of the seed of the people, many of whom the priests themselves had caused to stumble at the law. The priests, being partial in the law, were not keeping the whole law, but were choosing for themselves what to adhere to and what to neglect, just as Christ had accused them throughout the gospel of hypocritically pretending to keep the law. What follows in verse 10 of this chapter is an allegorical dialogue representing the results of their hypocrisy where the word of Yahweh attributes to these same priests rhetorical questions which ask, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And here in Malachi, we actually have a prophecy of the very dispute which became manifest in the ministry of Christ. This prophecy in Malachi presages the events recorded in the Gospel in John chapter 8 where we see a lengthy exchange of words between Christ and his opponents who were chiefly from among the priests. And he says... And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we read their response. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? Ye shall be made free. Now the children of Israel throughout their history had admitted to their bondage, first in Egypt, and then in Assyria and Babylon. These priests did not seem to understand the history to which they claimed the heritage, or that they had no part in. Even the Edomites were in bondage to the kings of Judah for many centuries, as were the remnants of the Canaanites. But these priests seemed oblivious in any event. A little later on in John chapter 8, Christ admits that they are descendants of Abraham, and he tells them, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. The Edomites were of Abraham's seed, as well as the children of Ishmael, Keturah, and all three of Judah's sons. And while all of them are children of the flesh, that does not make them all children of the promise. For instance, in Romans chapter 9, where he is speaking of the apostates in Judea, Paul of Tarsus expresses his concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. For those who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. And then he says, not as though the word of God has taken no effect 
for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, quoting the King James Version. And immediately after that, comparing Jacob and Esau, Paul explains for us the implications of what we find in the histories of Josephus and Strabo, that the Edomites became mingled with the Judeans and adopted all of the customs and identity of the Judeans, as Josephus explicitly states. In this manner, Christ could admit that they were Abraham's seed, and then he could deny that they are his sheep. Paul likewise says, in that same chapter of Romans, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So of all the sons of Abraham, which include the children of Ishmael and Midian, not None but the sons of Isaac are counted for the seed. And in that same place, Paul immediately goes on to explain of the children of Isaac that only those of Jacob inherited the promises, being vessels of mercy, while those of Esau were hated, being vessels of destruction. Doing that, Paul cites this very prophecy of Malachi, repeating the word of Yahweh where it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. So while the Ishmaelites, Edomites, and others of the children of Abraham are the children of the flesh, Abraham's fleshly children, only the children of Israel are the children of the promise. Who, as Paul says, are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Then, in the next passage of John chapter 8, where Christ admits they are of the seed of Abraham, Christ denies them any status as children of God, where he said, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered him, and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. So while the opponents of Christ may have been physical descendants of Abraham, at least in part, they were not actually Abraham's children. Reading the accounts of Jacob and Esau, the only thing that Esau had done which displeased his parents was to take wives of the Hittites. This is described in the closing passage of Genesis chapter 26. And Esau was forty years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. And this is such a dire situation, Esau being the oldest of the two sons, that it is described again in the exasperation of Rebekah, which is recorded in the closing passage of Genesis Chapter 27 And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And for this Rebekah arranged for Jacob to receive the blessing of the firstborn instead of Esau. And after her deception, Isaac approved of what had happened, where we then read in the opening passage of Genesis chapter 28. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, my mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban thy mother's brother. And God Almighty shall bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham 
to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. In the end, it is fully evident that Esau lost his birthright for the sole reason that he married wives from outside of his own race. And selling it to Jacob for a bowl of porridge really only commemorated the loss. It officiated it. Paul of Tarsus substantiates this observation in Hebrews chapter 12 where he calls Esau a fornicator or profane person. The word fornicator being a label for a race mixer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul called the episode where the sons of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab fornication. And in Jude 7, the apostle describes fornication as the going after of strange flesh. Where the word strange, heteros, refers to different flesh. The biblical requirement for proper marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam had no suitable wife, and Yahweh created Eve. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In the balance of John 8.41, after Christ had denied them status as children of God, the priests protested, and it says, Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So here we see the very historical fulfillment of this prophecy of Malachi, where we read in Malachi 2.10, after the priests had transgressed against the law and the covenant of Levi, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously? Every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers. Being mixed with the Edomites and Canaanites, they were indeed born of fornication, but did not recognize it because they were partial in the law. The questions of Malachi 2.10 are rhetorical, and unless one understands rhetoric, he may take an assumed but incorrect answer for granted. This is what most commentators do with this verse. But the questions are answered in Malachi 2.11, where it says that Judah married the daughter of a strange God. The very next verse. There is the answer of Yahweh, that we do not have one Father, and one God has not created all of us. As Christ told his opponents, every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted shall be rooted up. Therefore, there must be people here which Yahweh God did not create. Certainly Yahweh created all things. All of those things which are described in Genesis chapter 1. But he is not to be held liable for the sins of men and angels. And he did not create bastards. So Malachi chapter 2 is a complete rebuke of universalism. Once it is seen in its proper light, along with the words of Christ in John chapter 8. The truth is that God was not their father, and that God did not create them, ostensibly because they must have been bastards, as all of the Edomites and Canaanites were bastards. So Christ rebukes them again, where we next read in John chapter 8. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Without going into the details of the birth of Cain, the only murderer from the beginning was Cain, and to be 
children of this murderer. The opponents of Christ must have been descendants of Cain as well as of Abraham. <coughs> Excuse me. It is not that they worshipped Cain. It is not that they sinned in the manner of Cain. But rather that they were the children of Cain. An accusation which Christ repeated in Luke chapter 11. For these first century Judeans, there were two main avenues by which this could be, and we have only discussed one of them, while in verse 12 of Malachi chapter 2, the word of God shall reveal the other, an avenue which is much older and even more treacherous because it strikes much closer to the substance of many of these people of Judah, and was not as readily evident even to them. In the early chapters of Genesis, it is described that Cain moved to a region away from the sons of Adam, and built cities and had children, who were later known as Canaanites. They are described in Genesis chapter 4, and mentioned again in Genesis chapter 15. In that later chapter, we see ten tribes living in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Of these, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Perizzites have no prior mention in Scripture. They are not in the genealogies of Noah, and it is unknown where they could have come from. There is no way in hell we could know where they came from, except that if they didn't come from God, they must have come from hell. Some of the others are significant branches of the Canaanites. But the Canaanites and Perizzites, who are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, are distinguished from one another in Genesis chapter 13. So they certainly, the, the Perizzites, certainly seem to be of some unknown race or racial admixture. Later, as these accursed peoples are enumerated in Joshua, some of these names disappear and others appear, but the people are still the same, and in the biblical narrative, the Kenites and Rephaim are still present in the land at those much later times, being mentioned often and in other contexts. The Kenites are descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim are a portion of the giants. These Kenites and Rephaim had been intermingling with the seed of Canaan for as many as ten centuries before the Israelite conquest of Palestine, as long as five hundred years before the time of Abraham, when the land was divided in the days of Peleg. Examples of the Rephaim are Og of Bashan, and Goliath and his brothers. So this is not a singular allusion, but must rather be accepted as biblically historical fact. Ostensibly, in these early times, they spread out into other places as well, since these same Rephaim giants are ubiquitous in the legends of Mesopotamia, and are described with origins very similar to the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6, from whom the Rephaim had descended. So when Esau married into the race of the Canaanites, he was marrying the daughters of bastards from the line of Cain and from the Rephaim, and that is how Christ had confidently told his opponents that their father was a murderer from the beginning, a label which can only be applied to Cain. As Yahweh God does not accept bastards as his children, as he did not create bastards, and the children of Cain and the Rephaim are all ostensibly bastards, for which reason Esau lost his birthright, as all of his offspring were mixed with them, so it is evident here in Malachi and in John chapter 8 that all men do not have the same father and neither do they have the same God. But Judah also married a woman of the race of Canaan from whom came one of his sons 
And we read in the very next passage of Malachi another explanation of the reasons for the sin of the priests. But before we proceed to Malachi 2.11, we have a few other comments. None of the four different King James Version Bibles which we have in our possession connects these verses of Malachi 2.10 and John 8.41 in their cross-references. Yet this prophecy in Malachi was directly and clearly fulfilled in the discourse which Christ had with his opponents among the priests as it is recorded in John where Yahweh said that his name would be glorified in spite of the priests in Malachi chapter 1, and that he would turn his back on the priests here and have them taken away. All of that was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem along with the temple and the Levitical priesthood, and the transmission of the gospel to scattered Israel by the apostles of Christ. But the study Bible, <clears throat> which we possess from Liberty University, fails to connect these passages, as do the Thompson's Chain Reference Bible, the Bullinger Companion Bible, straight from the Masoretic Notes of the Jews, and the original King James Version cross-reference found in the popular Zondervan and Thomas Nelson Bibles of the past century. Matthew Henry not only fails to connect these passages, Malachi 2.10 and John 8.41, but even says in response to Malachi 2.10 that yes, certainly we are. God is a common father to all mankind, and upon that account, all we are brethren, to which I would say, bullshit. Matthew Henry's assessment borders on the criminal. Matthew Henry is directly refuted by the words of Christ himself in John chapter 8. This passage of Malachi contains three rhetorical questions. The first two, of which Yahshua Christ answers over 400 years later. And the answer to both is a resounding no. We do not all have one father. And Yahweh will not take the credit or the blame for creating bastards. Then the answer to the third question, as well as the proof of our assessment of the first two, is provided by Malachi here in verse 11, proving that our assessment of his first two questions is correct. And Malachi 2.11 says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed. In Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who we loved and married the daughter of a strange God. And here it is proven that we do not have all one Father and one God has not created all of us. Verse 11 answers the rhetorical questions posed in verse 10. Matthew Henry is one example of the many commentators who readily dismiss the meaning of this passage as a reference to idolatry. But that is not what Christ is saying in John chapter 8, and it is not what Malachi is saying here. Man is not created in the God that he chooses to worship, but rather just the opposite is true. The Adamic man was created by the God whom for that reason he should worship. The children of Israel were still the children of God, even in their state of idolatry. In their idolatry, they were never considered to be the children of a strange God, so long as they were still of the seed of Israel. But instead, they were children of Yahweh who were being punished for their sins. One place where this is evident is in an address to the scattered children of Israel who had gone off into captivity from Isaiah chapter 43, where we read, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up and to the south keep not back, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, 
every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. And we then see from the next chapter, from Isaiah chapter 44, that the children of Israel were not formed and created in their beliefs, but rather in the womb of Rebekah their mother. So immediately after the word of Yahweh once again describes their idolatry in false idols and graven images, he says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, not from their beliefs. They're in a state of idolatry as these words are being spoken. I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. If Adam was the son of God, even in his fallen state, as Luke attests in chapter 3 of his gospel, then Adam is the son of God because God created him, and not because of his obedience since he remained the son of God at the time when he fathered Seth and in spite of his disobedience. And if the children of Israel are still the children of God in their idolatry, as we have seen attested in Isaiah, then the reference to God as the father and creator here in Malachi, and later in John chapter 8, is not religious, but it is racial, since the Israelites were wholly descended from Adam and Seth, but the Edomites and Canaanites were partially descended from Cain, who was a devil, and from the Rephaim, who were the giants, the bastard giants of Genesis chapter 6. That is the reason why the genealogies in both Old and New Testament are so important in the first place. And if the references to the sin of Judah is the answer to the question, have we not all one father? And if the reference to the sin of Judah is the answer to the question, has not one God created us? Once it is seen that Judah took a wife of the Canaanites, for which reason she was the daughter of a strange God, we see that this is a racial reference and not a religious one. There is no indication in Scripture as to what God Judah's wife had worshipped. So this cannot be a reference to idolatry. But there is every reason to believe that she is a bastard, and therefore the people of Judah were not all of one God. And they did not all have the same father. Furthermore, the sin of Judah also explains why, at the time of which Malachi prophecies, the people are depicted to say, we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. Because as the Greek poet Aeschylus said, the bastard is forever an adversary to the true born. In that same manner did Cain despise and murder Abel, which was at the beginning. And in that same manner Christ said that they sought to kill him because they did the deeds of their father who was a murderer. from the beginning. Furthermore, if at least some of the priests who mingled with the Edomites and Canaanites were not truly Levites in the first place, that would explain the reason for the attitudes of the people which are reported by the prophet, that there are such divisions in the priesthood. And here is the root of the problem, because Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. Judah's first wife was a Canaanite, with whom he had three sons, a story which is related in Genesis chapter 38. Ostensibly, on account of the promises to his father, Yahweh had mercy upon Judah, 
even though he sinned after the manner of Esau, upon whom Yahweh did not have mercy. Paul also mentioned this difference in the mercy dispensed by God in his comparison of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. Judah is the first example of a vessel of mercy. So while Esau had no legitimate children and therefore lost his birthright, Yahweh had put it in the heart of Tamar to deceive Judah and taking advantage of Judah's own incontinence, Tamar mothered Perez and Zarah, who were Judah's only legitimate sons. However, one of the sons which he had with the Canaanites had survived, Shelah, and the tribe of the Shalonites remained attached to the legitimate descendants of Judah in Palestine. So we read in the kingdom period, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, the sons of Shelah, the son of Judah, were Er, the son of, I'm sorry, the father of Lakah, and Ladah, the father of Marishah, and the families of the house of them that wrought fine linen, of the house of Ashbeah, and Jachim, and the men of Kozibar, and Joash, and Seraph, who had the dominion in Moab, and Jashubeliham, and these are ancient things. These, and, and this I really think is funny, these were the potters and those that dwelt among plants and hedges, where they dwelt with the king for his work. So according to the King James Version of the Bible, the king and the children of Shelah the Canaanite all lived in plants and hedges. They really did not live in plants and hedges, as the King James Version mistook the names of two towns, literally, which were Netaim and Gadara. Gadara is mentioned as the town of Judah in Joshua chapter 15, verse 36. We can also discern that Shelah was not considered a legitimate son, regardless of his being attached to Judah. This is found in the account of the birth of Pharez and Zara recorded at the end of Genesis chapter 38, where it was evidently important to mark the eldest born of the twins and distinguish the order of birthright. So when the later kings of Israel were chosen, as well as the line of the Messiah, Pharez had the primacy and not Shelah, who was only a relative footnote in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. The sons of Shelah were not even mentioned by name in the genealogy of Judah in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, although the sons of Pharez and Zarah were both listed in detail. So it is seen that they were not assigned the same degree of importance. In the genealogy of Christ in Matthew, both Pharez and Zarah are mentioned, even though Zarah was not in the line, and there is no mention of Shelah. However, it is clear in the ancient history of Judah, that the Shalonites, as his descendants are called in the King James Version, were always in proximity to the legitimate children of Judah in Palestine. For this reason, many of those claiming to be Judah were not, because they were not of Zerah or Perez, but they were of the seed of Canaan. In addition is a Another complication, since the Kenites were scribes in Judah, as it also says in the first chapters of the book of Chronicles. Daniel makes such a distinction in Susanna at verse 56, where upon finding certain priests of Judah to be spurious, he exclaims in reference, or I should say probably certain elders of Judah I don't think they're actually called priests I'm sorry he exclaims in reference to them so he put him aside and commanded to bring the other and he said unto him O thou seed of Canaan this is upon their giving false witness O thou seed of Canaan and not of Judah beauty has deceived thee and lust has perverted thine heart Thus you have dealt with the daughters of Israel, and they for fear companied with you. In other words, 
such elders were able to corrupt the children of Israel, the daughters of Israel regularly. That's what Daniel is insinuating here. Thus you have dealt with the daughters of Israel, and for fear they companied with you. But the daughter of Judah, meaning Susanna, would not abide your wickedness. So Daniel alludes to the fact that these Canaanite interlopers in Judah were of a particular group of infiltrators who had been corrupting or attempting to corrupt the people for a long time. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 2 of his book, attributes the sins of Israel and Judah to the same causes, where we read in part, in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. So they had sinned in a manner whereby they could not be cleansed of their sin. Perhaps some genetic dung was spread upon their faces. The prophet Ezekiel also noticed this problem and put it in more explicit terms where he wrote in chapter 16 of his book, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. This would indeed be true if many of the people of Jerusalem at the time were indeed the seed of Canaan and not of Judah, as Daniel attested. This is the mystery of iniquity in Judah and in Israel. These Canaanites that they accepted in ancient times were forever the thorns in their eyes and the pricks in their sides, which Yahweh warned them that they would be. The Apostle Jude describes this method of infiltration and subversion in his one short epistle, as does Peter in chapter 2 of his second epistle. That is why, speaking of the priests of his own time, who were of Esau and Canaan, and not of Jacob, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 11, Christ had said, For this reason... Also, the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, or apostles, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race, from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zecharias, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Only the race of Cain can be blamed for the blood of Abel, and it was ever present in Jerusalem and the cities of Israel in the Old Kingdom. And Malachi continues in verse 12 and says, Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. This evokes the words of Christ as they are recorded in Luke chapter 13, in a passage which in turn evokes the children of Israel taken into captivity for idolatry, who nevertheless remained the children of God. And Christ said, When once the master of the house has risen up and is shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. In other words, I do not know where you came from. Because they aren't all of God. Then you shall begin to say, We have eaten and drank in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come, 
the scattered children of Israel, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Speaking in reference to those same priests who plotted to kill Christ, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 11 of his Gospel, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, Caiaphas speaking to the rest of the priests, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. In other words, the priests were afraid that the Romans would take the nation, the control of the nation from them because of the sedition which encircled Christ. And John continues, And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, but from a different perspective, that it would be preserved for the priests. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for him to be put to death. The children of God, scattered abroad, are the very same children of Israel sent off into captivity and addressed by Isaiah as the sons and daughters of Yahweh in spite of their idolatry. They're not children of other gods because they got taken off into idolatry. They're children of Yahweh God who happened to be in a state of idolatry. So we see also here that they remain children of God even when they had not yet been reconciled to Christ. So Paul of Tarsus speaks of those same children of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he said, Behold, Israel after the flesh, or according to the flesh, are they not which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Paul was calling the people of the nations of Europe, the so-called Gentiles, whom the Corinthians could behold. He was calling them Israel after the flesh, because they were the captive children of God scattered abroad, even though they were caught up in idolatry. But as Judah took as a wife the daughter of a strange god, a woman who was not of the race of Adam, and here Malachi warns that those of Judea who had done what Judah also did, by accepting the seed of Canaan and committing fornication with them, their children are bastards and they will be cut off forever. Several centuries later, Christ informs us that the sacrifices of these bastard priests who contended with him are never accepted. He didn't know where they were from. And they are doomed regardless of their presumed piety or apparent good deeds. So Malachi continues in relation to Judas having married the daughter of a strange god. And he says, And this have you done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with good will at your hand. Repeating the accusation found in verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Now, Malachi says, This they have done again. They did it in the days of Nehemiah. They did it in the days of Ezra. And here, this may be the third time they have done it, unless Malachi refers to the events of Ezra chapter 10, which is a possibility, as he apparently speaks of their remorse. 
If the repentance described in Ezra was not accepted by Yahweh, then we have no indication from Ezra himself, although it is still a possibility. In any event, the priests of the second temple in Jerusalem committed fornication and race mixed. And that is the reason for the rejection in the time of Christ. That rejection was mutual. Christ had rejected them just as they rejected Christ. And they had no hope of repentance, as we read in John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. This prophecy of Malachi is a notice as to why the priests were rejected. But as we have also said before, the names of the patriarchs in this prophecy are being used to represent the tribes themselves. So, at the same time, Malachi is prophesying of what is to become of the 70 weeks nation, that as Judah joined himself to a Canaanite woman, the nation in turn was to marry the daughter of a strange god and absorb the Canaanites of Judea into their polity. And that is precisely what began to happen in 129 BC. The people whom we now know as Jews are those whom he said are not his sheep and who for that reason had rejected him because they are the Canaanites and Edomites of the Old Testament and they are all bastards. As a digression, Judah was promised the scepter in the prophetic words of Jacob recorded in Genesis chapter 49. However, nowhere is the ultimate sovereignty of God more evident than in the life of Judah and the history of his tribe. Because all of Israel shall be saved, Yahweh used Judah's incontinence not only to assure that there would be twelve tribes in Israel, but also to assure that the enemies of God would ultimately be held responsible for the murder of God, the crucifixion of the Christ, and all of the prophets before him. The children of Israel are not without guilt, but his enemies will ultimately not be granted mercy. In this, universalism is rebuked, because all of the children of Israel shall be saved. But no bastard or child of a strange God will ever be accounted with Israel. And that'll be all. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.